This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Jason Kelly and Alex Steele here on a Friday afternoon. So happy to have with us on this day of all days. We're always happy to see him. Dr. Ian Lesbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU All Things Virus. We check in with him as much as we can, usually on Fridays and I always say this, Ian, it's like, wow, what a week, but man, (laughs) what a week, what a 24 hours in many ways. I have to ask you, what was your first reaction when you saw the news, presumably this morning, uh, that the president had tested positive? Hi, guys. Happy Friday, and thanks for having me. Um, I was not really surprised. I I was surprised that it took this long in a way. Uh, A number of people in the White House uh, tested positive. People are traveling on Air Force One. They're traveling on Marine One. You're meeting thousands of people all the time, all breathing on you uh, in a rather heavy way. And um, I'm just surprised it took this long for uh, the president and the first lady to to really be exposed. Um, I think the you know the issue is how uh, what do you do at this point, and do you treat? Do you not treat? But I think uh, I think even wearing a mask would not necessarily have really. Um, Uh, protected him that much because literally when you're encountering thousands of people in a variety of venues, I think it's just statistics that uh, uh, and good fortune that it took this long to to really get uh, significantly exposed. So obviously, seeing how the virus develops in President Trump is going to be really important for investors. We were talking to Vince earlier, who's a macro squawk here at Bloomberg, and he was saying traders are confused because they don't know why he's not tweeting. If he's okay, he should be tweeting. If he's not tweeting, maybe he's not okay. Um, Since we don't know what's going on inside the White House, can you just walk me through, okay, he was probably exposed a few days ago. He has some mild cold-like symptoms. Those are the reports. How does that develop? What are the days we watch out for? Well, what's fascinating about this virus and, and uh, worrisome as well is that there's really a spectrum of how people present. Many people will have very mild uh, minimal symptoms, a cough, sometimes diarrhea, you know, fever, muscle aches. And, of course, a subset of people, uh, and we can talk about that, although it's really not well understood what is different about the immune systems of of the people who deteriorate, obviously a subset uh, decline uh, over time with uh, uh, pneumonia, more severe pulmonary infiltrates, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, you know, and then wind up needing to be hospitalized and, and in a subset get put on breathing machines. Overall, it does seem, based on the data, that either the virus is mutating or, uh, you know, we're, we're being fortunate because the number of patients who really seem to deteriorate is, is decreasing. Is this greater awareness, perhaps, of vitamin D or zinc or, you know, some of the 
uh, you know, other supplements that, that may improve the immune system and may actually decrease the ability of the virus to attach to some cells, or is the virus just mutating and being less aggressive? So I think it's hard to predict in any one person, which is why we say everyone should wear masks and be careful. You can't tell just by looking at someone what's going to happen. Although we do know people with underlying conditions, um, older people, uh, that's the president's category, over certainly over 65, uh, elevated BMI or body weight, uh, that's the president, uh, uh, being a man versus a woman, all of those are increased risks for a bad outcome. But he doesn't seem to have other underlying issues which we would worry about, uh, high blood pressure, underlying lung disease, diabetes, uh, kidney issues. All of those other issues really would increase the potential risks. So he could just have a mild viral syndrome and, you know, have two negative swabs in the next week or 10 days. But really over the next few days, it's going to be important to see how he does. Ian, having followed this as closely as you have, how do you think this changes the national conversation and the perception of this virus? Well, um, you know, I think when you see the president get it, uh, as Boris Johnson uh, uh, had it in England and other leaders, uh, you realize that anyone uh, can get it. And I think it does make it a more serious um I think people take it more seriously, and I think there are some people who did not take it seriously. And I certainly understand that being in some areas of the country that um, may have a lower uh, number of cases. Certainly in the Northeast, we saw many people, uh, uh, body bags and refrigerated trucks, and you realize, hey, this is, this is a real pandemic. It's not, it's not a drill. So I think uh, it's certainly good for global awareness. But I think also uh, we're in a much better state. We have remdesivir. We have other um, other treatments that uh, you know improve the prognosis in many ways. So far, what do you make of the cautious reopening of New York City? Because I'm not going to lie, I'm nervous. Well, you know, this, as I've said before, this is uncharted territory. You know, the last pandemic like this was 100 years ago. So there's not exactly a uh, a, uh, a tried-and-true game plan for all of this. A lot of this, unfortunately, is learning as you go. And a lot of it is is regional. It depends on, uh, you know, case volume and so forth. There are certainly parts of the country where there are very low number of cases, in which case I think it's very prudent to get people back and – I, for one, have seen in my own patients um, a lot of consequences of people just staying home uh, emotionally, physically, and, and, and otherwise. We, as we sometimes like to say, people who've been on home isolation, many become either uh, hunks working out, chunks eating, or drunks and, uh, you know, uh, turn to other, other things. But I think in terms of school, uh, we should be testing kids with um, uh, the saliva antigen test. Uh, and nasal swabs, if necessary, it's reasonable to do that. Certainly, you want to do pods. I think it is reasonable to get kids back. Overall, kids do very well. Uh, uh, by and large, uh, their immune systems uh, seem to handle this, as opposed to the 1918 virus, where young people actually did more poorly. Uh, their immune systems were too active in a way. But here, it does seem that uh, younger people, uh, you know, below 20, uh, seem to do fairly well. So I think we do need to. 
move forward with getting kids back in a sensible way, maybe hybrid learning, uh, as they're doing in colleges, some remote. Not all kids have computers, uh, you know, in New York City. But so I think there are ways to move forward, and I think it would be appropriate mm-hmm. to do that. What is the number one uh, article in the terminal right now? Uh, the title is Orthodox Jewish Communities Chafe Under New York City Mass Crackdown. And this comes as there's local cases in certain zip codes uh, within New York City that happen to have a larger Orthodox Jewish uh, population. And there is a tension and lack of maybe communication uh, between the communities and um, officials. What do we do about that? You know, I think we have to go by the science, and um, Orthodox people I know are totally on board with wearing masks and and, uh, social distancing, and it's possible to uh, go to uh, churches or synagogues and and wear masks and have reasonable uh, social distancing, and and, uh, not everyone all together at one time. You have to spread out services. So there really are strategies that should not conflict. Science should not conflict with people um, uh, observing their faith, and there's certainly no uh, laws or religious laws against uh, being prudent and, and wearing a mask. So I think uh, better education you know, needs to be done and sort of an acceptance. Masks are not perfect. It will not guarantee that no one will get sick, but it certainly, we have seen, can be very useful. Um, and I think it's very prudent to do. And, and you know, local leaders really need to um, you know, step up and say, look, this is science. And all religions value health and safety above all. I mean, that's the first thing is uh, uh, preserving life is, is the first principle. And this is something that can help to do that. And so I would think that that uh, all communities would, would really want to follow that for the time being. Um, and then obviously we're working on vaccines and better treatments, whether it's monoclonal antibodies. And who knows, the president may actually get that right. uh, if he shows any symptoms. Yeah, it'll be interesting to to watch that particular case. So we sort of end up uh, right where we started. Thank you so much, Dr. Ian Lusbader. As Carol and I and Alex have all said uh, at various times, we really, really treasure you and and your insights. And you're so generous with your time, especially because we know you've been on the front lines of all of this since the beginning. And uh, you were our pal before, and you've become our go-to during all of this. So thank you so much, Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Professor of Medicine at NYU. This is Bloomberg Business week with carol masser and jason kelly on bloomberg radio jason kelly alex Steele here with you on a friday afternoon what a friday it is so let's check in on the economic side of what is clearly the story of the day what's the economic impact of the president being diagnosed positively with COVID-19. A lot of it is going to depend, at least that's the case made by our own Peter Coy, economics editor for Bloomberg Businessweek. These are the stories that I love, Peter, because I know Joel Weber, who's going to join us shortly, sort of saw this and was like, get me Coy. But he's going to tell me what it means from an economic perspective. So what does it mean? It's very early, so I'm not trying to make a definitive call and really just trying to ask around smart people what they're saying, and it seems as though there are two scenarios. One, the, uh, this somehow breaks the logjam in Congress over stimulus, sort of galvanizes the uh, House and the Senate to get serious about talks and produces a new stimulus, phase four stimulus, that helps the economy. That's the, that's the upside scenario. The downside scenario is that this alarms a lot of people 
who suddenly, for the first time, said, you know, this thing is real. Yeah. And I, maybe I better, like, not go to restaurants. Maybe I better mm. stay home. They spend less, and there's a negative hit on the economy. And we don't know which it's going to be yet. Right. And as, as you said uh, briefly, it depends. Well, one thing that depends on is how serious the president's illness is. Yeah. I mean, if he's over it in a couple of days, then it could persuade people, hey, COVID's not so bad, and things will get back to normal pretty soon. If it's serious, who knows? Uh, it, also, it, it also depends a lot on messaging from the White House. Right, right. So, Joel, did I characterize, Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, did I characterize it correctly? You woke up, saw you these did, headlines, like, a, get me coy. Yeah, you, you did a great job uh, pretending to be me. Almost he sounds like a private investigator from, like, the 40s. <laughs> get me coy. <laughs> The, the, uh, it was kind of actually what I did, um, although I, I will say that P- Peter already had kind of beaten me to it with, right. with, and started to actually prime it for himself. Uh, but, Peter, there's another um, um, aside that you sort of bring up um, in the, the story that I think is also worth a mention, which is, you know, the U.S. isn't the first country to have a head of oh, state yes. deal with this, right? So let's talk about some of the other countries that have... Um, had had prime ministers or presidents who have fallen ill and sort of what those economic implications have looked like? Well, the two big countries are Brazil and uh, UK, and Bolsonaro and Brazil. Brazil has had a tough time with COVID. So has the UK. But interestingly, um, there was not a huge noticeable change in the trajectory of the UK economy during the time that Prime Minister Boris Johnson was sick with COVID-19. And so our own Bloomberg economics, Yelena Shulyachieva, uh, takes that as a sign that this, again, might not have a huge impact on what happens to the U.S. economy. But you did have, what I find interesting, is Nancy Pelosi t- uh, speaking earlier that she was saying right. that it changes the dialogue, the, the diagnosis the dynamics, change. Right, dynamics, yeah. thank you. How, how? I was confused as to how it did. Well, you know, she didn't really say, so uh, we have to try to read the tea leaves on that one. But, I mean, one scenario is the White House has wanted a deal, and the, uh, the, the Senate Republicans and the House of Democrats have been pretty far apart. It seems as if the White House was willing to, like, bend a little more than the Senate Republicans have so if the Senate Republicans feel like, you know, we've got to give, win one for the Gipper, so to speak, maybe we'll bend a little bit and, and do, do a deal on terms that we, we wouldn't have done before. Uh, I don't think the Democrats are in the mood for moving so much. So it would be the movement, I think, might be more from the Republicans in the Senate side. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in there, Alex, because I think there, there's, um, there's a chance for a Trump mulligan here, which, um, I, I, you know, Knowing a little bit about how he golfs, I think there's a lot of mulligans going on there. But so, you know, if you recall um, Josh Green's uh, remarks just just in, um, you know, our last issue, he said this is kind of crazy that Trump hasn't been pushing for a bigger stimulus earlier. And, you know, Trump, the candidate would have done something like that. And that was one of the big differences with Trump, the president. So there is sort of perhaps a, a, a more radical 
um, about face that you could potentially see the administration trying to make now to say, look, like we were wrong. We really do need to double down on this. And, and you know, the, the House has basically put it right at the Senate's doorstep. So the Senate, the pressure, the, the dynamics that's differently from my perspective, at least, is, you know, is the Senate really going to stick with them, the, the kind of the their stance on it to date, which has been to not have a discussion about it, or or it could Trump sort of um, potentially be backseat driving a little bit from here. Yeah, I mean, it is remarkable to try and sort of stitch all this together. And, and this Peter Coy, as it feels like already we've got some crosswinds and yeah. some big questions about the economic picture here with just over 30 days to go. Right. Well, we had a jobs report today, 661,000 jobs added, which historically would be considered a fantastic number, but it's quite a bit slower. We had 4.8 million in June, for example. Um, Back to Bloomberg Economics, they're predicting the economy is going to grow at sort of a trend pace in the fourth quarter, only 2% or so, compared to these massive double-digit numbers uh, we, we saw for the third quarter. Uh, that, that number hasn't come out yet, but it's predicted to be in the range of 30%. So the the boom times, the the, the bouncing off the trampoline stage is kind of over for the economy. And so, we're, you know, what happens next? Do we go into a double dip? Who knows? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, it's a terrific piece of reporting and writing and analysis, as always. Listen, uh, I got to say, Joel Weber, you have a very challenging, difficult job. But I have to say, you must feel better about it when you can be like, who do I? Oh, Peter Coy, done. It's like solve all this for me, uh, at least from the economic perspective. So glad to see the team is in full effect on this. Peter Coy, economics editor for Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us from New Jersey. Joel Weber, of course, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joined us from Massachusetts. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. A little bit of Business Week economics. Jason Kelly alongside Alex Steele here with you on a Friday afternoon. And on this Jobs Day, delighted to have with us Richard Trumka, president of the AFL-CIO. He joins us from Maryland. Richard, a perfect day to talk to you. We saw the numbers this morning amid some other headlines, to say the least. Um, But when you look at the employment picture on behalf of your members and through the prism of labor, what do you see? Well, you see that the uh, recovery is starting to run out of steam. Uh, Most states provide six months of regular unemployment benefits, and the recession has lasted longer than six months already. And so many of them are starting to exhaust uh, their regular state benefits. In addition to that, uh, the Republicans in the Senate allowed the -the across-the-board $600 increase in weekly benefits to expire. Last week was the ninth week of unemployment in the pandemic uh, that recipients did not get the $600. And so you're seeing job creation go down each month. In June, we had 4.8 months, uh, whenever 4.8 million when everything was in effect. In July, you had 1.8, August 1.4. Now we had 661,000. You still, we're still 12 million jobs below where we would have been uh, prior to the recession. And you have 12 million people right now without health care. All of that's dragging down the ability of, of people to buy and consume and create demand and create jobs. I'm really curious as to how you see 
the job landscape evolving. Um, there's a real debate that's sort of coming up in terms of when and will workers regain power after COVID. There's one that says, yes, we're going to see higher minimum wages. If uh, Biden gets the White House, that's going to be a big push also. The other is that as long as you have big tech being big tech, um, it's not going to allow for workers to really gain rights and mobilize in the right way. What, what do you think about that? Because that's going to have a dramatic effect as to how we come out of this. Look, uh, let's start off with a little more basic of that, and I'll broaden out uh, your question. Uh, work, workers right now believe that neither the uh, political system or the economic system is working for them uh, because of the growing inequality in this country. And when workers talk about inequality, there's three inequalities that we're talking about. Inequality of wages and wealth, inequality of opportunity, and inequality of power. Until you fix the inequality of power between corporations and workers, you're never going to see wages increase. And without them, you're never going to see an economy that really grows because our economy is 72% driven by consumer spending. That growing inequality actually threatens the system that we have right now. So what we're looking for is to change the, the laws that were written in 1948 uh, and are totally antiquated and unacceptable and unusable today to new laws. President uh, or Vice President Biden, when elected, will do that. It will give workers more power. They'll be able to negotiate better wages. With those wages, they will spend and create demand and create jobs. And so in this next 30 days before this election, Richard, what do you need to hear? What are you expecting to hear from former Vice President Biden about his plans? What do you still need to hear? Well, you know, look, he's talked to us. He was with us on Labor Day, uh, and he talked to us about things. Here's, here's what I know about Joe. I've known him for 40 years, literally, personally known him for 40 years. Uh, and he's always been a blue-collar guy. He understands that a job's more than a paycheck, but a job really is about dignity and respect and security, uh, and he really does want to bring more jobs to us, and he has several plans to do that. We want to continue hearing him talk about kitchen table economics, those things that affect workers at the, at the kitchen table uh, every, every night as they discuss their day and discuss their future. Uh, he's done that so far. We, we saw a debate the other night, uh, and... and I was truly saddened. I mean, it was the debate itself was saddening and embarrassing because of the president. But the president didn't say a single thing about what he was going to do. He only told us about things that were bad about somebody else, or even that wasn't true. But, but that's what he talked about. I think workers want to hear what you're going to do to make it better for them. We can do to fix the economy. How are you going to do it? And don't give us platitudes. We're smarter than that. Right. And, and do you feel that, so in the middle of the virus, it has also expanded inequality in terms of white employment recovering faster than African-American employment, for example, um, and Latinx employment. Um, who fixes that? How do we fix that? The, the feds opened up their employment mandate, but there's only so much like the fed can do there. Well, look, as I said, it, workers, corporations are too strong and workers are too weak. They don't get enough share of what we produce. If you pass the PRO Act and you give every worker in the country the ability to negotiate with their employer, 
whether they have a union or not, they ought to be able to negotiate with their employer as a single body uh, to get a fair wage, to get fair benefits. When they do that, you'll start to see inequality start to shrink. You can't fix inequality. You can't fix inequality of opportunity, which is racism as well, uh, unless you fix inequality of power between workers and employers. Richard, one and last pro, question for pro, you. And the, and the PRO Act would do that, by the way. Only about 30 seconds left here. But tell me, are your members getting what they need from management when it comes to the right protections as it relates to the virus? Absolutely not. We still struggle with PPE uh, on the front lines. We still have our members getting infected. OSHA is still non-existent. It's A-W-O-L. It's not protecting workers. We're having to supply our members uh, with PPE that they should be getting from their employer. It's a disgrace. We do not have a temporary pandemic standard right now. We've tried to get one, but this administration refuses to help us and refuses to pass one, and workers are getting sick and dying because of it. All right. Well, sorry to end on that note, but we are going to have to end it there. Looking forward to catching up with you in the not-too-distant future. Richard Trumka, he is, of course, the president of the AFL-CIO, and we know that frontline workers have been so much, so disproportionately exposed to this virus in many ways. So look forward to continuing the conversation down the line with Richard. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, I said it earlier about uh, Peter Coy and and Joel Weber being like, hey, I want to know what Coy has to say about the economics of this. There was one person who I wanted to hear about, hear from when I saw these headlines uh, this morning, Alex Steele, when it came to President Trump and that positive coronavirus test. And that is Josh Green, national political correspondent, national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week, author of Devil's Bargain, and our go-to guy when it comes to politics. He joins us on the phone from North Carolina. All right, Josh, your reaction when you saw these headlines breaking overnight and into the morning? I actually got woken up by a phone call from CNN alerting me that Trump had had tested positive. Um, And because I'd I'd written a big story about what happened if Trump tests positive back in May, that that sort of unleashed the flood. Yeah. So, um, you know, shock and surprise, although when you step back and think about it, it really shouldn't be that much of a shock. given the way that the White House generally uh, has treated uh, taking health precautions, including the president. So you did write that article, which is I had the exact same thought. I was like, I must talk to Josh Green today in some capacity. Um, so how do we think about it? We don't want to speculate, but we do want to understand the procedure of how to keep the government running, et cetera. Yeah, well, the, the, you know, in talking to all the constitutional experts, I talked to former administration officials, Republican and Democratic, to see how previous uh, White House uh, administrations would have handled this. The, the one clear message that everyone sent is the most important thing is that the American public be, know and be confident that there is a commander in chief in charge. Now, if Trump is incapacitated because of the coronavirus, that isn't necessarily uh, a reason for worry. Uh, you know, right now the White House is saying that his symptoms are mild, um, but there have been you know routine examples in the past where presidents have temporarily handed over power under the 25th Amendment to, for instance, undergo a medical procedure. George W. Bush did that twice for colonoscopies during his presidency. Uh, Ronald Reagan did it once during his presidency. So it's it's really not all that unusual. 
where it becomes a little dicier is what were to ha- what would happen if Trump and Pence both tested positive for coronavirus and became sick to the, to an extent that they couldn't carry out their duties. Uh, you know, in that scenario, the Constitution has a clear chain of succession, but it next goes to Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And all of the experts I, thought, I spoke to said that is the point at which things get a little hairy because the Constitution, while it does give a line of succession, doesn't define what actually constitutes a president's ability to do the job. And so if there is a dispute, if, if Trump and, and Pence were to become sick, uh, and Pelosi were to say, well, you're incapacitated, I'm the president, and the White House were to say, no, they can still do the job, then you wind up in court, and that becomes a really scary scenario where you would have, presumably, uh, a constitutional crisis, global markets falling, and all of this would wind up in, in, in court. I think, thankfully, that is still a long way off, but it does highlight uh, one of the holes in the line of succession. All right, so... Let's move to the current political reaction to this and the implications of this happening, Josh, with just over 30 days to go in this hotly contested, closely watched, most important in a generation, if you believe most people, presidential election. How does it change it? Well, you know, I I literally just filed a column that should be going up any second now, and I will cannibalize my potential readership to share it with your listeners. You mean you're going to preview Um, it and tease it for them, right? Okay, that's that's, that's, that's the term of art. Um, (laughs) Look, I mean, the the short answer here is this is obviously not good news for for President Trump and his re-election efforts. Um, the, The election was already shaping up to be a referendum of his handling of coronavirus, uh, the president, the White House, and the re-election campaign have all tried to move on and focus on other things like the growing economy. This guarantees that coronavirus will continue to be, uh, you know, the main story in the weeks leading up to the election. And what I did in my column was dive a little deeper into how particularly that could affect different voter groups. The one that I keyed in on that I think is going to be uh, really critical was before the president's diagnosis, but certainly will be now that he tested positive is white non-college educated women, often referred to as waitress moms by pundits. Uh, They were a huge component of Trump's victory in 2016. He's been bleeding their support ever since. If you look at polls, they are particularly worried about coronavirus, Mm -hmm. unhappy with his treatment, and as a group, they are overrepresented in the upper Midwest swing states that are probably going to decide the election. Trump needed to win them back. I think that job is going to be even tougher now following his diagnosis. Can you help me understand also what happens if, for some reason, Trump becomes incapacitated and can't then take the presidency if he wins? Like, what's the process if Trump's still on the ballot um, and Pence is still his VP for the election? Like, what happens? What does the RNC do? How does the Electoral College deal with that? I mean, if if Trump were to be reelected with Mike will be his VP. If Trump is incapacitated, two things then happen. Number one, Trump could willingly, under the 25th Amendment, transfer power to his vice president temporarily. Or if he's not able to do that, if he's sedated or intubated or otherwise unable or unwilling to make that transfer, then Trump in the uh, sorry, then Pence in the cabinet can get together and decide to execute that transfer of power themselves. Uh, so that that would be a scenario. So 
if you're in the Biden camp right now, we've seen, you know, Vice President Biden, he, you know, tweeted, you know, thoughts to the president and, and, and the first lady on behalf of him and uh, former second lady, Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden. Uh, so we've seen his sort of public reaction. We've also we're also seeing him make a, a fairly rare road trip today to Michigan as planned after he did uh, test negative, according to his camp. If you are the Biden campaign right now, what's the playbook? Well, I think clearly you want to express uh, uh, sympathy, which Biden and his wife have done. At the same time, you know, the Democrats I've spoke to today, you know, say there there's a bit of a debate. I mean, how out there do they want to be? Do they want to take down their their ads, uh, you know, attacking Trump for his handling of covid? You know, will that seem ungracious? You know, do they want to pull Biden off the road for a couple of days? Or, you know, do they want him to kind of go out there and continue as usual, showing that because he took the precaution and has avoided being infected, that, you know, he should be out there making the case uh, for his candidacy. And I think uh, what we've seen just in the last couple hours is that Biden and Kamala Harris have every intention of going out and continuing to campaign. I got to be honest with you, I don't usually watch vice presidential debates. Is this now must-see TV this week? I think anything having to do with this campaign and the principles is pretty much must-see TV because you just never know what's going to happen. But I think certainly, given Trump's uh, diagnosis and the spotlight or the, the, the even more intense spotlight that is thrown on the race, uh, I think everybody in the this, I, I would predict that this will be the highest-rated vice presidential hmm. debate ever held, even eclipsing the Sarah Palin one a few years ago. Um, I think a lot of people are going to have questions about uh, how Mike Pence is going to you know, answer for what's happened and try and reassure voters that despite uh, COVID running rampant in the West Wing, that Trump is still able and capable to handle this crisis. So, Josh, one of the things you have pointed out in, in your reporting around this election and the previous election, the one that the, the president won to become president, was that, you know, this is a campaign where the real campaign manager and the real star of the show, by his own choice, is Donald J. Trump, President Trump. Uh, if he is sidelined, as he appears to be, even if he can still tweet and whatnot, who's his best surrogate in this vital mm -hmm. stretch? Who does he turn to in order to continue to get his message out in these last 30 days? You know, it's a great question. I think the answer is that there really isn't one. I mean, Mike Pence has said that he will go out and continue to campaign. But, of course, Pence doesn't have anywhere near the star wattage and the drawing power that the president does. I think one of the downsides um, of, of, of building the kind of cult of personality that President Trump has as, as both candidate and president is that, you know, it's, it's really tough to shove an understudy out there if you if you get ill. And so we've seen the Trump campaign is canceling all his events for the foreseeable future. Uh, he, he may do something uh, electronically or on Twitter, but but certainly this is going to be an impediment to his ability to get out there and try and narrow the gap with Joe Biden. And I don't see anybody besides Trump himself that can that can really be an effective messenger in that regard. So does this increase or decrease the likelihood of a contested election? You know, it's, it's really hard to say. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, making predictions about this are, are, are so difficult. But if you look at the hurdle that COVID and his handling of COVID was already posing to Trump's presidency, I mean, we see most polls showing Biden with a six, seven, eight point lead. 
uh, you know, scenarios in which there's a dispute about the election almost invariably revolve around it being a close election. I don't imagine that Trump's diagnosis is going to make the election closer. Uh, I think if it has any effect at all, it will probably uh, be to help Biden and, and would therefore lower those scenarios. But, you know, until we get reliable, you know, high quality public polling, which is probably going to take a few days, I don't think we can really say what the political effects of this are going to be one way or the other. Josh, last question for you. And then we know you've got a million other things to do. What does this do potentially to the SCOTUS nomination? Anything? Um, well, you know, it, it's interesting. You know, one of the Republican members of the Judiciary Committee, uh, Senator Mike Lee of Utah, also announced he's tested right. positive for COVID now after visiting the White House. Uh, that could put a damper on things. Uh, you know, Mitch McConnell and Republicans have been so determined to push through this nomination. It's hard for me to believe uh, that they would be thwarted by COVID. Maybe this delays things by a couple of days. Congress is scrambling to put in place a COVID testing protocol. But I'd be very surprised if this wound up scotching the nomination. Right. Josh Green, you're literally the best. Thank you so much. Bloomberg Business Week national correspondent, the guy you want to hear from on a day like this. So, so grateful to him for spending some time with us. Check out everything he's writing, and that includes apparently a column that just published. Uh, check that out on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. Also the author, of course, of Devil's Bargain, the definitive book about the 2016 election. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Joining us once again, one of our pals, Alan Zafrin, founding partner and co-CEO at IEQ Capital. Joining us on the phone from Foster City, California. Alan, so nice to talk to you on this lovely Friday afternoon, at least on the East Coast. How are things out on the West Coast? You guys have really had a time of it out there. Boy, Jason, I tell you, you're right. It's just devastating. One problem after another. I feel for the families that are dealing with the fires in Napa and Sonoma County's wine country right now. And that's on the heels of fires from a few years back as well. Yeah. On top of COVID and political uncertainty, and we can't wait to get out of 2020 as fast as possible. That's how we feel right now. Yeah, you and me both. So I want to talk about the the COVID crisis more broadly and how you think of it as an investor. But listen, the news today, as we all know, is coming out of Washington and and the president's positive case. I do wonder, uh, given your sensitivity to the political landscape and, and how it affects, I think, your outlook from an investing perspective, when you see a headline like that, like, what's your immediate reaction? What what do you do? You take a deep breath and just reassess whether or not you really need to react. Um, It's not good news when anyone contracts uh, COVID. So there's there's nothing to be said about it, good or bad, regardless of your opinions about our president and and his his family. But the reality is he's contracted the virus. We don't know how ill he is, let alone what the implications are. So to take that to an extreme seems to be a dramatic overreaction. And regardless of the fact, 
Markets in the long run are driven by economic fundamentals, not by who is running the White House. And economic fundamentals are determined by uh, congressional um, legislators as much as by presidents themselves. So the reality is you sit and you wait, you watch, but you don't react to some news like that. It's a moment in time. And if you're a long-term investor, you can't just jump on a headline like that. You have to see how events play out over time. I think where you do need to, though, look at it from a longer term perspective is how do you deal with a 60-40 portfolio? And this isn't totally off the news either, because whether or not you get stimulus, contested election is more likely. Does that put the Fed in the driver's seat more? No matter where we look, we're still looking at basically what you call financial repression. What's the 60-40 division? Does the 40 percent have to mean bonds? Does it mean something else? What's the right way to look at that? Alex, you asked an incredibly insightful question, and the problem is rates are going nowhere for a long period of time. So if I'm going to make less than 1% with 40% of my money sitting in tax-free muni bonds and treasuries, I have to, unfortunately, go out on the risk curve. I have to do something to create more return. Otherwise, I'm going to accept a lower rate of return. And so that is why stocks are up here. That's why valuations up here, because I can buy a basket of stocks like a Comcast and a Johnson and Johnson and a Pepsi Cola as much as a Facebook or an Amazon or a Google. And I know those businesses are earning at a much higher return on my cash than I'm earning on a bond. If I'm going to take a long-term view, it's very hard to see how I'll lose money on those assets. And I will probably compound at a rate such that I can get an acceptable rate of return on all of my capital. You are being forced down on the risk curve because cash is trash. And even long-term bonds in the public markets aren't compelling. So you really have to reassess your risk tolerance and you either have to say, I'm going to accept a lower rate of return or I'm going to consciously increase my risk a bit, look for dividend-paying stocks or look for other forms of income such as real estate in order to find a way to supplement the income that I used to get out of my low-risk bonds because it's not going to be there. Ellen, uh, you can't see this, but I can see Alex Steele in our studio, and she's unscrewing the mic so she can drop it after that great (laughs) question. Um, But I have to ask you, um, it really was a great question and a great answer. So I I do have to ask you, because Alex and I were just talking about this before we came into the conversation with you, which is real estate. I feel like we're all trying to get our heads around it, and whether there's opportunity, whether there's distress, obviously the answer to that question largely depends on geography, but but how do you look at it? How do you assess it, especially from a portfolio approach? Um, real estate, just like stocks, is specific both by type of real estate, meaning by buying an apartment building, mm-hmm. an office building, a warehouse, a self-storage. Um, it's also specific by location. Buying an office building in Manhattan is a lot different than buying a small office in uh, Riverside, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. So. You need to be very clear on the nature of the building, its asset type, its location, its age, its tenants, its rent rolls. The good news is there are public companies that allow you to access these various types, everything from senior housing to self-storage to apartment buildings, and they allow you to have professional managers to manage them on, on your behalf. So as an example... You can buy an ETF, the symbol's IYR, and it gives you about a 4% yield. If you're going to take a very long-term view, even if you think that the uh, occupancy in downtown Manhattan office towers is going to diminish somewhat, they're not going to completely go away. And so, again, relative to a a bond that's giving me less than 1%, if I'm going to take a long-term view, chances are I'm going to be okay. And if you really have sophistication, 
you might go out on your own and look to actually buy directly a building or go into a limited partnership with other investors and structure the investment differently. It's a different form of income generation. It does have some tax advantages as well. The income is taxed more efficiently at a lower tax rate, but it's still a risk asset. And they use leverage on these buildings. And when things go wrong, the building's owners can lose their money. So you just have to tread carefully. And like all things, don't put too much into any one thing. And we don't have a ton of time here, but I want to get your idea of if we do get, uh, if things get better and we get sort of inflation picking up higher yields, like when does it worry that investment thesis? Um, that's also, Alex, you got two outstanding Crushing it. She's crushing it. Bye. Crushing it. The irony of the market is oftentimes they don't do quite as well when the economy is doing great and vice versa. It's funny. The economy did lousy and yet the markets went up because the Fed acted and looking people looking prospectively forward. By the time the economy is robust, real rates are going up. And in a short period of time, meaning in a year or so, in that time frame, uh, interest rates will go up. Discount rates used on future cash flows go up, which lowers their values. It'll force PE multiples down, and we'll see probably asset prices fall a bit, which will seem counterintuitive. But you do need robust economic conditions to support the long-term sustainability of earnings growth and cash flow growth, which is, in fact, which allows your assets to grow over time. So it will be a short-term adverse effect, Mm -hmm. but long-term it supports the prices you're paying. All right. Alan Daffron, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Founding partner, co-CEO of IEQ Capital, uh, and I believe the uh, the latest to be installed as president of the Alex Steele Fan Club. So, um, we have listen, a couple openings. It's, uh, it's, it's the, They're legion. It is a <laughs> legion of people in any case. Uh, Alan Daffron, always appreciate you uh, there in Northern California giving us some really good perspective across all sorts of asset classes. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.